It seems like the online world is full of disinformation. There are deep fakes, fake news, information that's totally made up, information that's correct but taken out of context. Disinformation is being created and spread like wildfire, and it is impacting elections, public health, war, and many, many other things. I'm Clara Young, and I work in the OECD's Education and Skills Directorate. Today, we take on disinformation and its discontents with Molly Lesher, who is an analyst in the OECD's Science and Technology Directorate. Molly Lesher and her team have just published a paper called Disentangling Untruths Online, Creators, Spreaders, and How to Stop Them. I'm also pleased to welcome Andrea Schleicher, who is, incidentally, my boss and the Director for Education and Skills at the OECD. He's going to fill us in on why education is a secret to combating disinformation and how it can help develop young people's digital citizenship. This is the first part in a two-part series on disinformation and education. So thanks for talking to us, Molly Lesher and Andrea Schleicher. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, what's the difference between disinformation and misinformation? So that, that's a great question, Clara, and it's something that we really struggled with when we started writing this paper, because in the popular press, uh, also in academia, people use these terms very loosely, and so it's really hard to get a, a sense of what people are talking about. And so probably the hardest part of our paper was coming up with this kind of novel taxonomy of different types of untruths and disinformation and misinformation are one of them. Disinformation is really uh, false and misleading information that's knowingly and intentionally created and shared with the intent to cause harm or to manipulate people. Fake news is one type of disinformation. Synthetic media, deep fakes, uh, hoaxes are all, all types of disinformation. And we see them all the time now, too. Some of them are better than others. At the start of the conflict in Ukraine, for example, uh, there was a deep fake video of President Zelensky telling his people to lay down arms. It wasn't a very good one. But as the technology gets better, I really think uh, synthetic media is something really worrying and something we need to, to watch. Misinformation is also untrue, uh, false, misleading, but it's shared unknowingly and with no intent uh, to cause harm. And I think that that's really important. The two kind of axes of our taxonomy are the degree of fabrication and the intent uh, to cause harm. There are other types. I won't go into the definitions, but contextual deception, propaganda, which we see a lot of now with the conflict in Ukraine. So propaganda is really mostly created by, by governments. It's it's designed to manipulate people's collective attitudes, uh, narratives, opinions. It's not really meant to be informative. Uh, propaganda can contain true information as well as false information, uh, but it, it's somewhat different, and it's not really fabricated as such. It's not like a deep fake uh, video, for example. Now, disinformation has been around forever. What is new now, obviously, because of the digital dimension? Well, let's go into it. Yeah, so it, it has been around forever. You can think of the, you know, Orson Welles broadcast of the War of the Worlds in 1938, which scared people. There was this Martian uh, invasion. But the Internet has really amplified and reshaped people's ability to, to spread this type of content. And, and that's really happened because the Internet's become... 
the main source of news for a lot of people. In the last decade, for example, in the EU, about 65% of people get their news online. In the U.S., it's 85%. That's enormous. And so you have all these people going to, to the Internet for news you know, this creates this opportunity to spread both true and untrue content. Um, and because people get their news from social media sites, uh, social media sites curate the news feed, right? You have user cookies that store personal information that allow these companies to, to target people with content they think that they'll be interested in. And that, you know, they, they did that based on, you know, the belief that they were helping people, right? They were cutting out the noise. They were giving people what they wanted. But in fact, one of the, the bad side effects of that has been this ability for echo chambers and filter bubbles to emerge in which people really aren't getting a lot of good news or a lot of different viewpoints, I should probably say. And then they're more easily targeted with uh, disinformation campaigns. And we see this, it's called narrow casting, this ability to even target just a few individuals on social media has, has arisen. We saw this with some, some recent document disclosures about how uh, some online platforms operate. What makes disinformation so hooky? Well, it's salacious, right? If you're going to send your, your friend something, you want it to be exciting. And it's, it's somewhat normal that that the, the academic literature shows that fake news perpetuates, you know, so much faster than, than real content because it's sexy. People are interested in it. Um, the problem is most times people, people send uh, the news to people with the same beliefs. And when that happens, they're not checking its veracity. If I tell you something that you're inclined to believe, are you really going to go check the facts? Whereas if I tell you something that you're not inclined to believe, you're, you may want to go try to prove me wrong. And I think that's another reason why this content's really circulating uh, so much. So let's go into who is creating disinformation. I mean... Those are largely malicious actors. Often sophisticated disinformation campaigns are coordinated. They target different platforms at the same time. They use AI-based tools, uh, cyborgs, bots, to try to spread this type of content. But yeah, they're, they're largely malicious actors that, that want to change the narrative. They know they can't with the facts, and they choose uh, this method. And these could be state or non-state entities. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And how is it being disseminated? What platforms are the best or being used most I mean, that, that's kind of hard to tell because some of these social media platforms, you can't trace where the content's coming from and who it's coming from, even if it's coming from an actual person. So Telegram, for instance, is a little bit of a, a black box, and we don't know what's happening on that platform. Because it's encrypted? Is that, why, is that what you mean? It's anonymous. Okay, I see. It's anonymous, so you, you don't know where it's coming from. It's not like... Facebook, for example, where somebody has to have an account, whether that account's fake or not is a different story, but there is some type of account behind it. But in some of these platforms, there isn't. And it kind of gets at a, 
a really important point and a reason why me and my colleagues were so interested in this taxonomy is because there really isn't good data about mis and disinformation, period. We know it exists, but a lot of it's been focused on platforms like Facebook. And, you know, that's where my generation goes. Most of my, I don't have one. Most of my friends do. That's where, I don't want to say older people, but that's where we share. But when I look at my kids, they're a voice generation. They don't use email or texting. It's all voice. It's, it's completely different. The way the platforms they use, the way they get their news is totally different. And so the research is focused on people of our generation, which my generation, uh, which is important. But I don't think that we're getting at, at the full extent of the problem. And let's look at another part of the chain, which you're defining as well as is the people who are spreading disinformation, the super spreaders. What do we know about that part. I mean, I'm going to disappoint you, Clara, because we don't know a lot. You know, Facebook nicely had uh, an API that some researchers could plug into to try to analyze this it's called CrowdTangle. And some of there have been some, some good papers that come out of that, but it's not the full spectrum of content, right? Uh, we don't even know what the denominator is. We have some slice of information at a certain point of time, but we have no clue what the landscape is, to be honest. And so that's why, you know, we started started this research, and that's why we want to keep going with measurement, perhaps not trying to, you know, we're never going to count every piece of misinformation and disinformation there is. It's impossible, and I'm not even sure how useful it is, but to try to get a better sense of how people react to such content, even that type of information. Can they really distinguish it? Can they distinguish the worst type, which is disinformation, from, you know, the less worst types? Andreas, we have um, information in PISA 2018 on 15-year-old students and, you know, how good they are at telling the difference between truth and untruth. Yeah, in fact, this is something that we look very carefully at. Uh, the construct of literacy has changed so fundamentally. You know, in the 20th century, literacy was mainly about extracting knowledge from prefabricated content. Now, if you had a question, you could look it up in an encyclopedia and trusted answer to be true. But in a world today, uh, you look up things at Google and you get 100,000 answers to your question and nobody will tell you what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is not true. So in PISA, we have adapted our construct of literacy. And what we found is actually it was less than half of 15-year-olds across the OCD countries who could fairly reliably distinguish fact uh, from opinion. And that wasn't even about disinformation. That was simply about, you know, navigating ambiguity, triangulating sources, actually uh, figuring out, you know, uh, from conflicting pieces of information what is correct and what is not correct. These are not. This is not, you know... Uh, this is what 15-year-olds would encounter every day. So technology has evolved so much faster than our human capacity to, to actually navigate it. So, so students, are they, do they have a reflex of checking their information and comparing information? Do, do we know much about that? About 9% do. And that's a very small share, actually. For 9% of the students, you can say, actually, when they see something, they ask themselves, what is it? where does it come from? Who's written it? Does it sound, you know, credible? Uh, does it match what I've uh, read elsewhere? But uh, over 90% of young people 
rarely ask those kinds of questions, or not in a systematic way. So I think that is really the the trouble of of our times. Uh, we, in in the past, you know, we had a very uh, small number of news anchors. You know, you, you could count them on a hand. You know, the t television anchors, the newspaper editors. Today, everybody is their own writer. But we haven't adapted our behavior uh, to the certainly not young people. I, I do think that is a that is a real issue. Molly, in the subtitle to your report, it's Creators, Spreaders, and How to Stop Them. What are some things about how to stop them that you've looked at in the report? Personally, I think that the digital literacy initiatives is one. It's among the most important, partly because you're never going to be able to take down all of this content. And so you have to, in some ways, inoculate people against it to be able to identify and ignore things that, you know, the, the really bad disinformation stuff. Um, I won't go into more about that because I know that's a, a main uh, research area uh, of your team. But other other approaches that, that we see as really important, one is developing content moderation um, within a multi-stakeholder process. So that means not just platforms having to do it on their own, but platforms doing it in a transparent way with civil society, uh, with governments, with individuals, right? Um, and and that, that's really important. That's something that's there, at least in Europe, they're going to have to do in the content, uh, the context of the Digital Services Act that will go into um, go into force in the next six month, months or so. That's one approach. Uh, explaining how takedown um, decisions have come about, tagging content. A really interesting approach from Twitter is this so-called crowdsource fact-checking, um, and that's a really new, a new and interesting approach. Other other things we think are important is integrating people with technology. So, AI-based tools, algorithms have been a real way for such content to spread. They're also going to be part of the solution to fixing it. One thing we haven't talked about is the, the threat to this content on democracy. You know, and there's a big initiative in, in the OECD about this. And one thing that came up in our research is trying to make the rules in the analog world applicable online, uh, right? We can't make it harder, expect the digital world to be different than analog. And when you think about political advertising, um, the rules for online political advertising are different than they are in the analog world for TV, for example, where you have to have that disclaimer that this ad was paid for by, you know, such and such an entity. We don't have that online. And so if 85% of people in America are getting their news online uh, and you have political advertising where such disclaimers aren't required, you know, maybe that's an area that, that people uh, want to look at. And then the last thing is something, because I'm a super nerd, is about the measurement agenda uh, and trying to get people to collaborate on this because, you know, the OECD can't do this alone. We're going to need the private companies that have most of this data to participate in ways that don't 
you know, disadvantage them in terms of, you know, disclosures and confidentiality and whatnot. You know, you you um, began by talking about digital literacy, and that's one of the key recommendations in the OECD recommendation on children in the digital environment that was adopted uh, last May 2021. And um, that recommendation was to promote digital literacy to directly target misinformation and disinformation. Andreas, just explain to us what exactly is digital literacy? Well, digital literacy is our human capacity to disentangle information. It's not actually so much about technological literacy. I think most uh, people are now quite good at that, at least young people. Uh, it is really our human capacity to, to process, to analyze, to contrast, to critique information, uh, to distinguish fact from opinion, to navigate uh, ambiguity. And it is really, I think, the key to, to the issue that we discuss here, because, you know, misinformation, disinformation is in a way the, the, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, the bigger issue really is that, you know, we live in those echo chambers reinforced by algorithms that tend to amplify our own beliefs, our own views, and actually insulate us from opposing viewpoints from different perspectives. And, and uh, even if the information we read is all true, it, it does give us only a very partial picture. And uh, uh, I do believe um, it's actually interesting, you know, to what extent do we approach this issue from a consumer protection angle, you know, walking on a supply side? or from a digital skills angle, and that is about strengthening the capacity of people to better uh, navigate information. It's actually quite interesting that we haven't touched knowledge in the same way that we address this with uh, consumer protection with physical products. You know, people have sued McDonald's if they feel too fat, or, you know, they will sue uh, Starbucks if they burn themselves with hot coffee. So, but with knowledge, uh, we haven't touched it because, you know, that immediately then gets into the issues of uh, free speech, uh, democratic principles, and so on. And the result is that this market of information remains totally unregulated. You know, the only antidote really is to strengthen your own capacity. And it's not just, you know, the technical skills, it's your willingness. It takes an effort to question information. It takes, you know, energy to actually look at alternative sources, to look at opposing conflicting viewpoints. It's not comfortable for us. And that is really what digital literacy is about, to spend that extra energy, to look at, you know, different ways, to embrace, you know, different perspectives and ideas. And um, it's not impossible. Like, there are many really, really great programs, you know, rather than just handing books to children, you can send a journalist to a classroom. I mean, journalists are really good at this. This is their job, actually, to sort of uh, uh, look at things from different perspectives, to t look at this in a neutral fashion, you know, to let different voices speak and so on. And we can actually educate and teach uh, those skills very well. Why do I say this? Because there are enormous differences across countries. Uh, if you go to Singapore, if you go to Korea, parts of China, you have well over half of the uh, student population really, really good at that. You know, they're used to this. And uh, in other countries, it's a very small minority. You have actually the majority of people who just don't even have the navigation skills to manage digital information. You know, that's the starting point. You know, uh, do, I, do I know how to look for you know, alternative sources and so on? And then, you know... I think that is really where the where the issues are. But I think our tools are evolving as well. But we, we just have to get out of this mentality of a 20th century concept of literacy towards the uh, world in which we, we live today, certainly young people. 
Is there a socioeconomic breakdown to the students who uh, do well, who have high digital literacy, and those who have uh, digital literacy that's, you know, a little bit lacking? Do we see any patterns there? Absolutely. And that's actually uh, what makes this even more serious. You know, people from uh, students from disadvantaged backgrounds are much more prone to, you know, fall into the traps of fake news. And uh, for them, it has real consequences. You know, you make purchase a decision on your mobile phone. You have actually so many tools today. Uh, uh, and if you lack uh, those skills, then I think it becomes really serious. So there is a clear socioeconomic gap. But what makes me optimistic is that also that socioeconomic gap varies across countries. There are just some education systems that are quite good at moderating it. And it really shows that you ask yourself, now, who can make a difference? You think it's friends, it's family and so on. But actually, school is a major contributor to this. If you ask, uh, you know, 15 uh, year olds where they get that information from, a lot of this actually comes from and through schools, through the peers in that environment. So that is a you know, a great way how we can level the playing field. But we're not in many countries, we're not very good at this, particularly not if you look North America, Europe, you see a quite steep uh, socioeconomic gradient. How comfortable are teachers with uh, digital literacy programs? Yeah, you know, there are two answers to this. I mean, technologically, clearly, uh, teachers often have a long way to go. But there we can actually rely on young people. I think the, the kind of cognitive, social, emotional skills that underpin you know, digital literacy are actually ones that good teachers can teach really well, even if they're not, you know, intimately familiar with the technology itself. So I think actually teachers have many truths. But the other part of the answer is, uh, you know, where teachers have their limitations, we should just be better in bringing other sources of society into the classroom. You know, schools are often very good to keep students inside and the rest of the world outside. Now, once again, you know, journalists are the navigators of information. You know, they can play a role in the classroom and they make actually literacy so much more interesting, so much more real. Actually, I've been in many of these programs, you know, lie detectors is a great kind of initiative where actually, you know, you get those people into classrooms and students immediately start to question them. How do you know this? Where was it written? And, and these are exactly the questions that they should be asking. So with lie detectors, you're talking about uh, it's a digital literacy program in schools, right? Yeah, and it's one that is actually run by journalists. So it's not, uh, you know, a government-provided program or one, you know, that comes from the education profession. It's really a group of journalists. And, and it's actually Financial Times runs a similar program. I, I, I do think there are a number of really good initiatives where actually the, the media have, you know, taken part of their own responsibility. I mean, in a way, the, the platforms and the media... Are, are sort of um, uh, part of the problem, but they can also be a big part of the solution. You know, this last question I'm going to address to both of you, because I think it's a very important one. I, I sense that young people, because the information sphere is so littered with a very a, a real confusion of good information and bad information or malicious information, how do we help young people to be skeptical about information that's on the internet and social media, but without being cynical or apathetic. I think this is uh, where the problem really starts to become serious, that young people, if they no longer know, you know, what they can trust and what they don't trust, that they just, you know, take a step back and say, look, this is all nonsense. And uh, 
I, I do believe we need to encourage a positive engagement with knowledge, with information. We need to see that this is an interesting part to navigate uh, the, the world of information. And I do believe that's what teachers really can do to build that relationship with students, to engage them, to understand you know, who they are, who they want to become, how I can accompany those students on their learning trajectory. And then, you know, uh, the world of information becomes part of this. I, I do think this is a big, big issue today. As a great literacy teacher today, you're not just a good instructor. You need to be a great coach, a great mentor, a great facilitator, a great evaluator, a great, you know, social worker, a great psychologist. I do think really, and not least a good data scientist. I think that's really, really important to have young people, to accompany young people in this new world of information. I guess some young people are apathetic, but just looking at my own kids, I'd say they're not at all. Uh, they're deeply engaged in what's going on uh, around the world in the election in France and COVID pandemic. Should I get the vaccine, mom, or not? I mean, they're interested. They want to know the answer, um, but they don't always know how to get the right information. And so I guess for me as a parent, and I guess for us as citizens, I think it's all of our roles to model good behavior, to be interested in the world, to exchange viewpoints, to debate. You know, whenever my kids say something, I'll say, well, there's another side of the story and it's X. What do you think about that? You know, and it's like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And so I I try just being a parent to, to encourage that. I think the, the schools do too. And I think, at least for me, having kind of teenage type, type children, one way to reach them with some of this stuff could be through the medium that they're interested in, which is, you know, video, right? They're the voice generation. They're the video generation. And I've seen quite a few different games for example, that try to teach people how to distinguish between uh, fact and fiction. You have, you know, the Go Viral game, which um, was produced with the Cambridge Institute that focused on COVID. They had a precursor to that called Bad News. You see lots of the platforms actually having their own games that try to teach people how to distinguish. And I think that you know, I'm not an expert in this at all, but that seems to be a good complement to what I can do at home, what teachers can do in schools, and then what platforms and other parts of the community can try to, to contribute, to try to reach kids in ways that, that aren't boring, that are engaging, that will help them really develop some of these skills that, that are so needed. Well, thank you very much, Molly Lesher and Andreas Fleischer, for your thoughts on disinformation and what education can do about it. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about the report Disentangling Untruths Online, go to goingdigital.oecd.org. To find out more about the OECD's work on education and skills, check us out on Twitter. Our handle is at OECD, E-D-U, skills.